0: All right, we're going to get right into it today. We today come to the end of a 17 year study (laughs) of the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. And in essence, it is a day or two before Jesus is going to die. He is sitting on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. He's looking at the temple. He tells his disciples, it's all going to come down. And they associate that with the end of the world. And they say, tell us. Tell us about the end of the world. What should we look for? What are the signs? And he spends two chapters talking about the end. Now in chapter 25, he gives three parables. The first parable is the parable of the bridesmaids. There were ten bridesmaids. Five were ready for the groom who was coming Five were not. And he warns us to be ready for his return. Then there's the parable of the talents. which is a picture of, a, of him, God, giving gifts and talents to his servants. And then there's an accounting day where you will give an account for what you did with your life to advance the kingdom. Not just to advance your own kingdom, but what did you do to advance the kingdom of God? And then the last parable that we looked at last week is the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, when I return and all the angels with me, I will sit on a throne and all the world will be gathered before me. And you will go into one of two groups, the sheep or the goats, We looked at the details of that parable last week. Today, I just want to concentrate on the very last sentence. He says, and these, referring to the goats, the unbelievers who displayed their unbelief through their lack of good works. The goats, these, will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous, the goats, or excuse me, the sheep, into eternal life. I want to focus particularly today on the phrase eternal punishment. Several years ago, I got an email out of the blue. Uh, As you know, we have a website, valleybrookchurch.com. All the sermons go up there. So I have no idea who's listening to him. Could be you know, people that we don't know about. But I got an email from a guy named Charles who apparently had either listened to sermons or saw our doctrinal statement. And um, he was quite exercised. Let me read at least part of the email. Uh, Dear Brian, just came across your site by chance, was looking for some Christian clip art. Uh, now, and by the way, <laughs> Christians borrow clip art all the time, so, um, was looking for some Christian clip art. Now, you say you believe in the wicked burning for untold, ceaseless ages. So, hey, Charles here, good to see you, like your clip art. You think people are going to hell? You know, like, gets right down to the issue here. And he calls them the wicked, and scripture does call uh, unbelievers wicked, all right, so you say you believe in the wicked burning for untold ceaseless ages. You have a shallow picture of God, Brian. How can a, you now speaking of attributes, how can a just, merciful, gracious, loving God, and God is love in caps, that's what the Bible teaches us. How can he fry his children? Okay, now pause right there. Um, I can tell Charles' theology Uh, Is a little off here. First of all, he he includes the word just with merciful, gracious, and loving. I don't think he gets what just is. I think he thinks that just means just fair, and if it's fair, God would never send anybody to hell. Tells me he doesn't understand the true justice of God. The true justice of God is that he does nothing wrong. And if he sends somebody to hell, rather than us questioning God, we need to say, wow, my sin must be far worse than I ever imagined. But he lumps just in there with his mercy and his love and his grace. And now they're no longer wicked. They're his children that are being fried. Uh, You know, a lot of people have this misconception. Not everybody's God's child. Only those who have been adopted by God when you believe in God, then you are adopted into his kingdom, and then you are called his child. So now he's gone from the wicked to God's frying his children. Okay? So he has kind of a universal view of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Okay? Um, how can he burn them for untold, ceaseless ages? Five exclamation points. If that were my God, now listen to this. If that were my God, I would not want to associate myself with him in any way or form. Four exclamation points. He would be the most evil, tyrannical despot in the history of the earth. Five exclamation marks, okay? Now, at least Charles gets the gravity of what we're talking about here. Some people go through their entire life, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible. And do you realize that unbelievers, according to our Bible, go to hell For eternity. People who really think, have you really thought about that? Is that the God you worship? Charles says, "If if that's true, I can't worship that God. Well, what happens to unbelievers then, Charles? Well, he says, in order to keep peace and happiness in his kingdom, he needs to destroy Satan, Satan's angels, and all those who reject the love of God, who sent his only begotten son into the world to save us. Five explanation points. They will be forever eradicated from existence, not burning endlessly. It will be as though they had never existed. All right, so he's an annihilationist. Annihilationists believe in hell, but when you're sent to hell, you burn up. And you don't exist. In other words, what they're offended with is not the existence of hell, but the eternality of the existence of hell. Okay? Um, Then he gets emotional. How can I accept a God who is burning my dear family and friends alive who did not accept him? Well, Charles, they're, they're your dear family, but you said it. If they haven't accepted Christ, they're wicked. They're getting what they deserve. Right? How can I accept this God? That, that is ultimate evil. All caps. Ultimate evil in itself. No, my friend. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not like this. They will be burnt up, consumed, and finished. Five exclamation points. Please, brother, I implore you, and I know God does too, read with an open heart. All that is there. He sent me to a website. It turned out that it was a Seventh Day Adventist website. They do not believe in the eternality of hell. They believe in annihilationism. And he ends, love, your brother in Christ, Charles. (laughs) Thanks, Charles. So, here's the question. What are we to do with hell? Um, I'm going to raise six questions about hell. And try to answer them according to scripture. Okay, So question number one. Does the Bible allow for annihilationism? Or annihilation. The idea that uh, we aren't suffering for all eternity. We just go out of existence. Does the Bible allow for the concept of annihilationism? And where would they get this idea? Well, the, the, the concept of fire itself. When something is thrown into the fire, it's destroyed. Right? So the concept that you're thrown into a lake of fire, uh, most things thrown into lakes of fire are destroyed. Therefore, fire equals uh, annihilationism. Okay? But here's the problem. The word Eternal, that modifies life, is the exact same word that modifies punishment. So, if eternal life goes on forever, as we all agree it does, so must eternal punishment. Or the converse of that would be true. If eternal punishment isn't forever, neither is Eternal life. You can't, in the same sentence, take the same word that modifies two different things, but it's the same word. You can't change the meaning from one use to another use. Now, another strategy that annihilationists try to use is to redefine the word eternal to, to say it doesn't mean forever and ever, but it just means a really long time. Now, if you if you do a word study in the New Testament on that word eternal, it appears 69 times. I looked each one of them up this week. Okay, Every one of them, at least in my brief reading, means forever and ever and ever. In fact, it's used of God in Romans 16.26. God is referred to as the eternal God. He just isn't around for a really long time. He is eternal. Okay? But here's what they will try to do to convince you that eternal doesn't mean forever and ever and ever. They will take you to the Old Testament. Now, remember, we're switching now from New Testament to Old, and we're switching languages. The New Testament was written in Greek. Now, when we go to the Old Testament, we're talking Hebrew. So you really can't do a word study in just the English Bible, because we're, we're switching not only words, but we're switching languages. But there's a handful of times when the word eternal in the Old Testament English uh, is applied to things that are not eternal. For example, in Habakkuk, there's a time when God appears uh, in glory, and Habakkuk says, He, God, stood. And measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So now you go, well, eternal mountains, mountains, we know God created them, they haven't lasted forever. And in this verse itself, they're destroyed or scattered. So Uh, you would have to read this to mean the mountains that were there for a long, 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 long time God destroyed. Therefore, eternal doesn't always mean eternal. So when Jesus talks about eternal punishment, it doesn't necessarily have to be eternal. Okay. Problem number one, we're switching words. Problem number two, we're switching languages. Problem number three is this. Is there anywhere else where Jesus describes hell where he doesn't even use the word eternal, but it's clearly forever and ever? Yes. Here in Mark, and it's, it's almost as if Jesus, as he spoke these words, said, you know, there's going to be annihilationists 2,000 years in the future who are going to mess with the word eternal. So I need to talk about hell in a way that uh, conveys that it goes on forever and ever and ever, but I won't use the word eternal. So here he speaks of hell in Mark 9:47, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Well, what about hell? Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What's that talking about? Well, when you throw a body in the grave, larvae destroy the body. Your larvae never die. Yeah, it's gross. It's disgusting. It's meant to be. Okay? But notice that Jesus doesn't use the word eternal, but you've got. Worms that never die and fire that never goes out. Now, an annihilationist would say, yeah, well, the worms live forever and the fire burns forever, but the person goes out of existence. No, no, no. How can you have a worm without a a host? How can you have fire without fuel? the eternality of the worm and the fire is based on the eternality of the person. Right. So, does the Bible allow for annihilationism? No, it does not. It is eternal and you do not go out of existence. All right. Let's ask another question. Does the Bible teach purgatory? Now this is interesting because you know I teach my kids when you witness to people, you ask a question. You, and they've asked their friends questions like this. If you were to die today, and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And most people say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. And then they say, well, if you were to die today, where do you think you would go? And um, most people say heaven, but they've gotten a few answers where people go, well, that's easy. I'd go to purgatory. And that throws them for a loop because they don't know about purgatory. Right? Right? Does the Bible allow for purgatory, a Catholic concept that when you die, you go not to hell, not to heaven, but a place of continued cleansing and purging to make you perfect before you enter into heaven? Does the Bible allow for purgatory? Now, let me just simply answer it this way. Jesus didn't gather all the nations. He won't gather all the nations and divide them into three groups, the sheep, the goats, and the porcupines. Only two places. You, either you're a sheep or a goat. You're not a half goat or a half sheep. You either are a sheep or a goat. Two places, two kinds, that, that, that's it. Here's the problem with purgatory. It actually lets people off the hook. You see, when you preach the gospel, first you're supposed to preach the law. The law measures you. And the law demands that you be perfect. If you're outside of Christ and you think you're going to get into heaven on your own, you need to be absolutely perfect, not only in deed, but in thought, and in motive, the law should slay us. So we're, we're helpless and we go, how can I possibly be saved? And then we hear about the cross and we flee to the cross. But here's what purgatory does. It says, well, I'm not perfect, but I guess I'll just burn that imperfection off. It, it, it lowers the threatening level of the law. So we don't flee to Christ in total trust. Second thing purgatory does, it shames Christ. He didn't pay it all then. His righteousness and his cross, it gets you partway there, but you, you better get cleaned up through your own suffering. Right? Where did purgatory come from? Is it in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. But here's the problem. When your system of salvation demands that you actually become perfect, you need a purgatory. Okay, Let me show you this, this graph. This is uh, uh, the sanctification graph. Here, here here's your growth in holiness, and here's over time. Now, here's what Protestants believe. The moment you trust in Christ, you are declared Perfect. Is it because you actually are perfect? No. It's because Christ's perfection is given to you. Romans 5 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, being justified is being declared perfect by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of the the biblical gospel the minute I trust in Christ, his perfection is given to me and he sees me as perfect. So right now, I am justified. I am perfect in his sight, not because I actually am, but because I have the borrowed perfection of Jesus Christ. And now, that actually motivates me to grow in holiness. Now, the Roman view of justification is that the moment you believe, that starts the justification process, but you are not declared finally just until you are actually just. Well, How many people die perfect? None. So if this is your death and you're not perfect yet, guess what? You need a place to go to actually become perfect. That's where they get purgatory. You see, a wrong view of salvation necessitates a place for you to be made perfect that could take, I don't know how many years. I was always taught millions of years, but maybe they've shortened it since then. Uh, Where do you go to find out how long? It's not in the Bible. But a wrong view of justification messes the whole thing up. But you can build cathedrals on the doctrine of purgatory because you can buy people out of purgatory. It's a great scam. And it is a scam. Sorry if that offends you. But we're talking about salvation here, right? We're not messing around. We're talking about eternal things here. And the fact that we can go, ah, well, they believe in purgatory, whatever. It's a shame to the cross. It's a shame to the law of God. It's unbiblical. It robs people of their money. It's not Christian whatsoever. So does the Bible allow for purgatory? No. Third question. Does the Bible allow for a second chance? Well, um, you know, a few years ago, Rob Bell came out with his book, Love Wins. Millennials, younger people, ate it up. They love Rob Bell. They love his book, Love Wins, which basically says you get a second chance in hell. And hell will eventually be emptied because you're not locked there for eternity. You know, when that book became a bestseller and kids at Moody were loving it and kids at Wheaton were loving it and uh, evangelicals were loving it, that was my wake-up call that the country has tipped. The country's tipped. You know, you can look at things politically, you can look at things morally. I look at Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, as the tipping point. We've gone over the edge. We don't want to worship the true God. We want a nice God who lets people out of hell. Okay, let me give you a quote from uh, from Rob Bell's book. and And part of his he's a very good communicator, but part of his communication strategy is to play on your emotions. Here's his emotional appeal: Could God say to someone truly humbled? broken and desperate for reconciliation now this person's in hell okay sorry too late many have refused to accept the scenario on which somebody is pounding on the door apologizing repeating and asking god to be let in only to hear god say through the keyhole door's locked sorry if you had been here earlier i could have done something but now it's too late that's heart-wrenching, right? Somebody, please let me out of hell. Please let me into heaven. I repent, I repent, I repent. And so the knocking on the door thing, I mean, no, you can't imagine this. Has Rob read the parable of the ten virgins? Where five of them go into the wedding banquet. The door is shut. The other five who weren't believers are now pounding on the door It says, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, Jesus came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Gee, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine Jesus doing that. Jesus tells us that he will do that. You can base your theology of end times and heaven and hell on your emotions and Rob Bell's playing on your emotions or on Jesus' words. You know, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who goes to hell and a poor man, Lazarus, who goes to heaven to be with Abraham. The uh, man in hell is asking Abraham for relief and to be let out of hell. Here's what Abraham says. And besides this, all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able... And none may cross from there to us. Now, the word chasm, do you say chasm or chasm? Chasm. Who says chasm? Okay, I'll say chasm. (laughs) Chasm. It's eternal. You can't cross from one to the other. So what's Rob Bell going to do with the chasm? You got to do something with the chasm. Here's what he does with the chasm. He says it's not a structure of heaven and hell. It's something in the heart of the rich man. In their previous life, the rich man saw himself as better than Lazarus. And now in hell, the rich man sees himself as above Lazarus. Oh, so he's still proud in hell. It's no wonder Abraham says there's a chasm that can't be crossed. Here it comes, here it comes. The chasm is the rich man's heart. Oh, I didn't see it. It hasn't changed. Even in death and torment and agony, he's still clinging to the old hierarchy. He still thinks he's better. So if he would just repent a little more of his arrogance in hell, then the chasm in his heart would be closed and then he could go to heaven. No, Rob, you're not allowed to take a structure that describes a fixed separation between heaven and hell where the word of God says you can't cross from one to the other and allegorize it into the rich man's heart in hell. But you got to do something if you don't like hell, and that's what he's doing. Okay. So do you get a second chance in hell? No, you don't. Now, let's let's go a little deeper here. How can eternal judgment for temporal sins be just? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, let's say you are a really bad sinner here on earth for 70, 80 years. Is it fair to be punished for eternity? Let me give you four answers, four responses. Response number one. The length of time that it takes to commit a sin and the length of punishment that the sin deserves have nothing to do with one another. Okay, The length of time it takes to do a sin and the time of punishment should have very little to do with one another. Uh, In one of Lee Strobel's books, he is talking to a theologian about hell and the, uh, the theologian gives this illustration. He says, let's say... Your brother-in-law has collected all the National Geographic magazines. You ever know somebody who's got them, all of them in the bookshelf there? Like the house is starting to tip because they have all the National Geographic. And you are secretly plotting to steal one volume a year when you visit for Christmas. So, hey, I you doing? And you sneak in the National Geographic. So... This is a 70-year plot where you have stolen 70 National Geographics. Okay? So that's a 70 year crime. Now, let's contrast that. You know what this Friday is? 50th anniversary of the death of? Yes, C.S. Lewis. But he died on the same day as John F. Kennedy. Okay? And, oh, boy, all the TV shows are all about the death of Kennedy. And I find them fascinating. Okay? Now, if you hold to the one-shooter theory, okay, that it, Lee Harvey Oswald did it alone, and it wasn't the FBI or the CIA or Castro or Khrushchev or the Secret Service or Johnson or Jackie herself, um, <laughs> Okay, and they've got these shows with Dealey Plaza and the Book Depository. From the angle of the gun is 16 degrees from here down to his head, and then there's the pristine bullet. The uh, oh, I love this stuff. Okay, but let's say let's assume it was Lee Harvey Oswald. He fires three bullets in six seconds. Should he only be punished for six seconds? Where is the National Geographic criminal? Get 70 years. See, I, I give an extreme example to say, wait a minute, where do we get the idea that the duration of the time it takes to sin should be equivalent to the punishment that it deserves? Okay. That's an invalid thought. Answer number two, the time of your punishment should be proportional to the majesty of the one offended. So let's say uh, you have two kids in the nursery and one brother slaps the other brother. What does that deserve? Maybe a timeout. Maybe he deserved it. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes as a parent, you look the other way. You go, yeah, he he had that coming. (laughs) right. Now, what if you walk up to the Queen of England and slap her? whoa, that's going to put you some time in prison. Do you know that every time we sin, we are slapping the face of the holy, 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 perfect God of the universe? And if he deems that the appropriate punishment is eternal for slapping an eternally holy being then so be it. Okay. Third answer to the question, how can eternal judgment be for temporal sins? Here's here's an interesting thought. Who says anybody repents in hell? Why do we have this picture that people in hell are going, "Oh, I want to worship the holy God now. I am so sorry for my sins." In fact, in the book of Revelation, there are three series of judgments, the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. One of the judgments is that the sun can scorch people. It says the fourth angel, this is Revelation 16, poured out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. This is about as close to hell as you can get, right? They were seared by the intense heat and they repented of their sins and turned to God. No, they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Searing heat of the sun burns them and they don't repent. They curse God. Why do you think that in hell people are repenting? Okay. Fourth response. Rather than us questioning the justice of God, because we don't understand how punishment can be eternal, wouldn't it be better for us to humble ourselves and say, let God be God and trust that he is perfectly just and realize how horrible our sin must be? Rather than us judging God, why don't we let God judge us? And say, I don't, I don't have a clue how horrible my sin is. But for God to send me to hell, it must be bad. Right? So that's my response. How can eternal judgment be just for temporal sin? Okay. Now, Two more before the wrath comes. <laughs> Jesus only suffered the wrath of God for six hours on the cross. Why didn't he suffer for eternity? You ever thought of that? Well, how about this? Rather than saying Jesus suffered for six hours, therefore hell must not be eternal. We should say, hell is eternal. What Jesus suffered in those six hours must have been an infinite amount of wrath. You can put it this way. The cross is greater than hell. The cross satisfied in six hours what hell cannot satisfy for eternity. Okay, last question. Wasn't Jesus a kind preacher and not a fire and brimstone preacher? Well, I, I don't know that the two are mutually exclusive. Can you not be kind and truthful? At the same time. You know. um, You rarely hear about hell in church today. At least in most churches. Why? Well because people don't like hell. It scares the seeker away. It's not nice. You don't grow your church. Talking about the wrath of God. You grow your church talking about really important things. Like. Child-rearing tips from the book of Proverbs. There's a place for that. But we've made that the full diet today. And hell, while it may be in the doctrinal statement, rarely gets talked about. And I would say, if you're in a church that doesn't make eternal punishment central and the cross central, you're in a compromised church. It's more concerned with the opinion of man than proclaiming the word of God. Let me show you this. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus preaches five sermons. In fact, the, the Matthew scholars, there are Matthew scholars, would say that the book of Matthew is built around the five discourses. So if you go, boy, I sure wish we had Jesus' sermons Uh, preserved somewhere. We do. Five of them in the book of Matthew, right? Now, of those five sermons, in how many of them does Jesus bring up hell? Is it one of them? It's all five. It's all five. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says, It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. At the end of the sermon, he says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. That word means damnation. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus loves people enough to warn them of hell and to even say, most of you are on the road to hell. Only a few have found true salvation. And then he ends the sermon. You know, they say, always end positive. Always end positive. Jesus ends with the story of the two builders, one who builds his house on the sand, one who builds his house on the rock. The rock is building your house on Christ. This one, the, house that build, uh, the man who builds his house on, on Christ, the storm comes, and I've arranged for some really good visuals here, all right? <laughs> the storm comes, and he survives. But the man who built his house on the sand, the sandy land, right? Whoops, I even skipped one. Here's how, here's how the Sermon on the Mount ends. It fell with a great crash. Way to end positive, Jesus. Why does he end negative? Because he loves people enough to warn them about going to hell. And then here, of course, Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Many are deceived about their salvation. Now, that's just a Sermon on the Mount. His next sermon is the commissioning of the apostles. He sends them out to preach and to do miracles and so forth. And he says, you're going to be persecuted. Now, here's how you disciples can stand up under persecution. Remind yourself of this. Where is that? It is here. There we go. Matthew 10. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? That's not the devil. That's, that's God. What he's saying is this. When you're being tortured for your faith, don't deny me. Just remind yourself that this is nothing compared to what God can do with your soul In hell. You see, when we don't talk about hell, we rob the church of one of the greatest motives to stay faithful to the gospel the thought of the alternative of going to hell. Right? That's the second sermon. Then uh, he he preaches in Matthew 13 a bunch of parables called the Parables of the Kingdom parables that describe what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Uh, between his first and his second coming. Now, in one of those uh, parables, it's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The field has wheat, but the enemy comes and sows weeds. That's why there's weeds in your garden. An enemy comes at night. Little, He puts weeds in there. Okay? So then, at the end of the age... The wheat is separated from the weeds, and the weeds, which represent unbelievers, are thrown where? Into the fire. That's hell. He tells a very similar parable, the parable of the dragnet, where the lake is dragged and all the fish are taken out, and the good and the bad fish are separated. And what happens to the bad fish? they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is his third sermon where hell is prominent. Fourth sermon, Matthew 23. I call it the blasting of the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites. And for a whole chapter, he points out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. And at one point he says this, You make him, your converts, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. And then he says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? That's not nice. That's not in the church growth manual. Are we going to go by the church growth manual? Or are we just going to preach the word of God? Last sermon. Olivet Discourse. Chapter 25. Parable of the ten bridesmaids. Five of them are prepared. They go into the banquet, which represents heaven. Five of them are locked out. The door is shut. And he says, I tell you the truth. I do not know you. Three parables in chapter 25, uh, the first parable clearly about going to hell. Next parable, parable of the talents. The master gives his employees some money, go invest it. One guy doubles it, second guy doubles his. One guy does nothing with it. What happens to him? Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Second parable... Hell is prominent. Third parable. Parable of the sheep and the goats. The last public thing Jesus says on on earth, or at least in a teaching setting. Then they, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I think we need to adjust our evaluation of how to evaluate a church in a sermon. If we're to follow Jesus, we don't hide the truth. We proclaim the truth. Why? Because if we love people, you need to be warned about hell. Many are going there. Many are deceived. But there is good news. The good news is Jesus solved your wrath problem. That's why he died on the cross. The purpose of going to the cross was to absorb the wrath of God on the behalf of all who on behalf of all who would turn to him and trust in him alone. Let me close with used this illustration before. I can't find a better one, but the story of the, the prairie fire is coming toward a farm. and the man sees his family's going to burn. So he goes out into his barn, he's got some gasoline, and he goes out in the middle of the field, and he pours a big circle of gasoline, and he burns out a section of the wheat field, and he has the family stand in the burnt-out section. And as the fire rages all around them, the little girl says, I'm afraid. And he says, don't worry. We're standing where the fire has already been. That's the gospel message. The cross is where the fire has already been. The wrath has already been poured out. And while talking about hell and worms and damnation is terrifying, there's good news. You don't have to go there. If you stand where the fire has already been. What does it mean? Stop trusting in your own righteousness to get you into heaven. It ain't good enough. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. Believe with all your heart that he died to pay for your sin. That you are a sinner who deserves damnation. But he died and paid the full price for your sin. You turn from... And part of the thing you repent from is not just your sin, but your self-righteousness. And you turn from that and you turn to Christ and embrace him and him alone. And the good news is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? Have you you stopped trusting in your own goodness? Have you stopped living for your own sin and turned to Christ who paid the price? Worship team, come on up. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that we have something to rejoice over our eternity. Not because we're perfect, but because you're perfect and you died in our place. Lord, we rejoice that you promise that when we stand where the fire has already been, we trust in you that we're covered. Thank you, Lord, for taking hell in our place. In Jesus' name, amen.